All right, well, good morning. Uh, I want to welcome you to Parkview East. My name is Doug, uh, campus pastor here, and glad to be able to open God's word with you this morning. Um, I would have thought there'd be more people here this morning because of the heat. Um, those, I don't know if you know yet, but those three rows right there are easily the coolest spot in town, all right? So if you need to use that as a way to get people here on a hot summer day, I mean, you do what you got to do, all right? Um, but if you are, are new, if you're um, new to our church, just want to let you know we have been in the middle of a series where we're studying the Beatitudes. Um, it is one of the most beautiful, hopefully you've seen, if you've been with us for a few weeks now, you've seen that it's also one of the most convicting passages in all of Scripture. And so I would invite you, if you have your Bible, to go ahead, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 5. Um, we're just going one beatitude at a time. And essentially, this is the beginning, the opening of Jesus' famous, the most famous sermon that was ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And these are the first sort of statements that Jesus gives as he begins to teach the disciples. You know how the setting is, as Jesus is on the Mount and he calls his disciples to him and he begins to teach them and unpack with them the way the kingdom life is supposed to be lived. And in their midst, in the midst of them, are also crowds that are gathered around listening to the teachings that Jesus is giving his disciples. And so when you think about what Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount, it's very similar to what we do here on a Sunday morning. Church, essentially, when we gather on a Sunday morning, we're giving God's instruction to God's people. But we also are aware that in our midst, there usually, generally are folks who do not know Jesus. And so they have the opportunity to listen in and to catch a glimpse of what kingdom life looks like. And so as Jesus is teaching these Beatitudes, one Beatitude after another, he is laying the groundwork, the ethic of what kingdom life looks like. And so we've looked one at a time. This week we are looking at Matthew chapter 5 verse 8. Uh, Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the back. There won't be words on the screen, so I'd invite you to, to get around somebody who does if you did not have one or use your phone, whatever means that you need. Um, and what we see as we've looked at these Beatitudes is that, th that order matters. That Jesus is not just willy-nilly throwing out statements. He, these are, are teachings that have been well thought out, and they build one after the other. So as he looks at the first three, if you would kind of picture in my mind what I, the way I picture it, is it's kind of like a valley, a, a slope going down into a valley and then another slope leading out of the valley. And if you look at the first three Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's the first side of the slope making your way down into the valley. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And then the fourth, so this, this first three that lead into this va valley really are three Beatitudes, three statements that describe what the empty life looks at. That as we look at our lives, we should be broken. We should be poor, recognize our poverty of spirit. We should be broken over the sin that exists in our life, and we should be humble before the Almighty God. And so as we examine our lives, we make our way down the slope into the valley, and it leads us ultimately to the fourth beatitude, which is blessed are those, the result of those three should be a hungering, a thirsting for righteousness. And the promise that comes with that is that they will be satisfied. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be satisfied. So as you're in that valley, as you come to the bottom of yourself, your desire, your, your result is to cry out to God to fill you. 
And as he does, you begin to make your way up the side of the valley, the other hill. You begin to lead out. The picture is of the next three Beatitudes is what the filled life looks like. As God fills you, as you cry out hunger and thirst for righteousness, he fills you. And the result is you are merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We talked about that last week. And the next one, this picture of the full life as you make your way out of the valley, is blessed, blessed are the pure, pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's our focus this morning, is blessed are those who have a pure heart. The blessing is that you will see God. So as you make your way up this, this hill out of the valley, this is the picture of what the filled life looks like. And the result, the final beatitude, is that there will be persecution. That the person who lives this life that, that God is, Jesus is teaching, that embraces this ethic that he's instructing, they will be persecuted for righteousness' sake. We have seen that each one of these beatitudes, that there is a promise of a blessing which accompanies each attribute of kingdom life. Each attribute comes with a blessing. Jesus is showing that embracing his way of life, following what he is teaching, is worth it. He is showing you that it is worth it here, now, and it will be worth it for eternity. He's saying that far greater are the riches that I have to offer you than the riches of all of this world. Far greater is the comfort that you find in me than the comfort that the world has to offer. Far greater is the joy that I extend to you than any joy you can find anywhere else in this world. Far greater is the satisfaction that I will give you than anything else promises to satisfy. He is he's showing you that his life is worth it by showing the blessings that come with it. You know, I think about the different sort of carrots that we use to motivate even children. There's one that maybe I'm a little guilty of is sometimes when we're playing baseball, this is an easy one. My kids maybe can identify this. I always tell them, you can't tell anybody, otherwise it doesn't count. I'm going to kind of let the cat out of the bag here. But sometimes if they get in a slump and they can't quite hit the ball, I have one particular son that's really motivated by money. And so, I hey, I'll pay you a dollar if you can hit it out into the grass before it hits the ground. And I'm telling you, it's like clockwork. He goes up and that thing is gone, right? He wants that dollar, okay? But, but if he tells anybody, it deals off the table, right? So Jesus, in, to some degree, is showing us that there is a benefit. There is a blessing. And in some degree, I would say, giving it to us so it would motivate us. Because the reality is, everything else in the world is saying, don't follow that. Don't believe that this is where satisfaction comes from. This is how you find comfort. The riches of the world are far greater than what your God has to offer. And so to some degree, I believe he is motivating us as we see these blessings. And in our mind and in our heart as we read them, we should be saying to ourselves, it is worth it. It is worth it. And so that's the question. Are you convinced? It, see, but in order for this formula to work... In order for us to see that, okay, I must endure the, the mourning of this world to receive his comfort, we have to want what he's promising us. You actually have to want that. You have to want that dollar. Otherwise, who cares if you get a hit? You actually have to want it. And I would say up until this point, every one of us could probably say, yes, I want comfort. 
I get to inherit the kingdom? Absolutely. I'll take that. The riches of God and his heaven? Absolutely. Don't need to convince me of that. I want that. I get to be satisfied. The deepest longings, the emptiest parts of my body get to be filled? Absolutely. I would say this is the one, even merciful. I'm merciful and I receive mercy. Sign me up. I want mercy. I would say this is the one, this is the one that not everybody is convinced of is always worth it. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. This one, I would say, probably, if you were to go out into just Iowa City, Coralville, North Liberty, wherever you live, and ask people, do you have a desire to see God? I mean, I, I'm sure many people might get there eventually, but that's not a, a thought that most people walk around with daily in their hearts, a burden to see God. But what we will see this morning, what I hope you will see this morning, is that the blessing which is promised gets at the very heart, in this beatitude, gets at the very heart, the purpose of all religion, of all religious efforts. The vision of God has and always will be the ultimate goal of God's people. It is the ultimate goal. This is the cry of David throughout the book of Psalms, Psalm 27, 4. One thing I ask, O Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why does he want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David's desire to be in the presence of God is so that he can see God. All throughout the book of Psalms, this is his cry. This is his plea that he would see God himself. Now my prayer for us this morning as we approach these precious words and, and discern their meaning is that we would leave here today with a greater sense of both awe for the Almighty and inadequacy as we consider our own hearts. So let me just go ahead and pray for us, and then we will dive in. Father God, Lord, I thank you um, for the opportunity right now to look at your words. I thank you that you have given us your word, Lord. And we know this morning, Lord, we are reminded that, that we have a tremendous, along with this amazing gift that you have given us, Lord, comes a tremendous responsibility. Lord, a responsibility that we would be faithful with your word, that we would be obedient to follow and walk with your word, Lord, but also a responsibility to share your word, to proclaim it. We see the, the result of the life that is following these beatitudes ultimately leads to a life that is like salt and like light, that it is winsome by nature. And so our prayer is that as we listen to your word, as we begin to follow your word, Lord, that, that the world would see us. And some would not know us, Lord, but would want what we have, Father. So I pray that this morning your word would be a treasure that we would cherish. Lord, I pray that you would use it to convict your saints to walk in obedience. We ask these things in your holy and precious name. 
Amen. Uh, one of the shows that is on quite frequently at our house is River Monsters. Anybody ever seen River Monsters? Uh, Jeremy Wade, right? Big River Monster family fan. And a lot of times it's not by choice, but by force, okay? And so there's one particular child who just loves it and is always watching every episode three or four times. But if you've ever watched River Monsters, what Jeremy Wade essentially does is he goes, he travels the world, and he searches out these massive fish that live in rivers, river monsters. And he, he follows legends and tales of, of things that people have said in local villages, that there are legends that this fish devoured these people and so he steps into the culture and he he listens to the the stories that are told the legends and then he gets out his fishing pole and he begins to investigate could this fish have done that or what kind of fish could have done that was it a fish was it something else he is essentially an investigator and his hope is that he would show us and teach us the beauty of these monsters that live in these waters. Now, there was one we were watching this week, and I watched a little bit of it last night. I fell asleep on the couch while I was watching it, but that's neither here nor there, and, which tends to happen all the time, by the way. Um, the older I get, just the quicker I go down anymore. But anyway, so, so the one that he was watching, they're trying to catch, was the fish was called the goonch. Goonch, okay? On three, let's all just say the we just say goonch on three. One, two, three. Goonch. Very good. Um, and the goonch is like a massive catfish that lives in India and Nepal. It lives in this, in this river. And it's a, it's a legend. There's a story that, these, that there was a, a person that lived in this village had been killed. And, and everybody assumed it was this massive catfish that had these big teeth in its mouth that destroyed this person and killed them. And legend after legend of murder after murder that was attributed to this Poor, beautiful catfish, I'm sure, which is innocent. I don't know. But as Jeremy Wade steps in, he's trying to figure out, is it true? Could this fish do that? And as he does it, what he does is he asks a series of questions. Well, first of all, is a fish this big? Can a fish grow that big to do something like that? Does it have power in its jaws? What do its teeth look like? Where does it live? Does it attack things ferociously? Or is it just a, a bottom feeder? He asks all kinds of questions, regardless of the fish, regardless of the setting. He steps in and he asks one question after another. And that's essentially how he discerns what is true and what is false. And as we approach God's word, it is our responsibility to do the same thing. As we look at God's word, oftentimes we look at it and we can be tempted to just take it on the surface for what it is. But if we do it, we could potentially miss out on the truth and the blessing that it could have for us. And so we should approach God's word much like Jeremy Wade approaches fishing legends around the world. We step in and we ask question after question after question. That's how we get to truth. And so as we look at one beatitude after the other, we are going to do the exact same thing. We have been doing the exact same thing, asking questions. What does it mean to be pure in heart? If we want the blessing to see God, we have to understand the meaning. What does it mean to be pure in heart? So the first question we're going to seek to answer, come up with an answer for this morning, is that. What does it mean to be pure in heart? Now to do that, purity of heart. What is purity of heart? We're going to start with just the word heart. 
just with the word heart. What, does, what significance does heart have within Scripture? What meaning does Jesus have here? Well, there's three essential things I think that we need to understand about the nature of our heart. The first thing is that the heart is the center of man. The heart is at the very center of man. The heart is essentially who we are. We, when we are left alone to our own thoughts and our own feelings, our own affections, that is who we are. It is the center of man's being, our personality. It is the fount out of which everything else comes. It includes the mind, the will. It is the total of who we are. The source of every activity in our life comes from our heart. It is who we are. It's the center of man. The next thing we need to know about the heart as we think about it in light of scripture is that the heart is not just the center of man, it's also the center of man's troubles. It is the root ultimately of my problem. It's the root of your problem. It is our heart. We read in Matthew 15:19 our Lord says, "For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. All of these things come out of our heart. I think one of the greatest lies of the last several generations is to think that all of our troubles are simply a result of our environment. That if we just control our environment through sort of social reform, we will solve the ills of the world. Martin Lloyd joins is helpful here. He says, it, this logic overlooks the simple fact that it was in paradise that man fell. In the most perfect setting this world could have to offer, that is exactly where the first sin took place. Creating a perfect environment cannot solve our problems, for it is out of the heart that these things arise. Consider any problem in life anything that leads to man's sufferings, and it is the result of someone's heart. Someone, somewhere, some nation, some group, it comes ultimately out of the heart. Being socially conscious Christians is necessary, and I am a huge advocate for this. We are irresponsible recipients of his grace if we are not burdened for the broken, if we do not care for the sick and the poor among us, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We must, as God's people, we must do this. Yet, we are ill-equipped to do any good if we do not recognize that social reformation comes from heart transformation. If we don't recognize that the reformation of our community starts with the transformation of our hearts, our work is misplaced. Our efforts are in vain. I think about the work even that we do here at Faith Academy and ultimately one of the things that I think makes it so special is we believe that. We believe that if we want to make any difference in our community, it starts with the hearts of those little people that are in those classrooms every day and the parents that bring them here and that want this education for them. It is a recognition that the heart is where we must do the work. That's ultimately what Jesus has called us to, is to minister to the hearts, to minister to the hearts. Now, I don't think you can do that if there are people who have 
physical needs. I think sometimes the physical needs can get in the way. And a lot of times, serving those needs, needs are the exact way to their heart, is the bridge that you build so that you can afford the opportunity to work with a young person's heart. All right? But ultimately, transformation starts in the heart. Now, it's the center of man, it's the center of our troubles, and that's the reason why throughout Scripture, throughout the Gospels, you will find it is the focus, it's the center of Jesus' teaching. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, what Jesus is doing is drawing a line directly to the heart of those who are listening. I think about the way he talks about anger, just two quick examples, the way he discusses anger. You have heard that it is said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. It's not just the act of murder that is the problem. It's where it comes from. The act happens because it's birthed out of the heart. Jesus' focus is the heart. The way he talks about adultery as well. Further on in chapter 5, verse 27 and 28. You have heard it is said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, anger, adultery. Jesus' focus, his concern is not to manipulate the environment, to control the behavior, but to transform the heart. That's where his focus is. As he taught, he wasn't primarily concerned with a legalistic following of laws and rules and ceremonial cleanliness. He was concerned and focused on what was inside of man. This wasn't the first time in Scripture that we see God's focus here. We see it all throughout the Old Testament. One quick example is in 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, as he was looking for his servant David to make king, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is God's focus. Though this is how God operates, the religious rulers of Jesus' day had drifted far from this truth. Jesus' focus on this issue was a direct confrontation. It was an assault. It was all-out war on the Pharisees, the religious rulers of the day. In Matthew 23, 25-28, listen to how he talks to the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. If you want to have change on the outside, start with the inside. Focus on the inside. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus knew exactly. This was the great benefit that Jesus had as he did ministry. He knew what was in man's hearts. When he spoke to people, he spoke to them not on their outward appearance, not on the way that they wanted to be perceived by those around them. He spoke to them and challenged them because he knew exactly what was in them. When I think about how could, what thing of Jesus could we have that could really help us out ministry-wise here, that would be the gift I would love, is to be able to discern exactly what was going on inside of people's hearts. Because if we're true, if we're honest, the game that church people are really good at playing is the same game the Pharisees played. It's the exact same game. Is our 
thought is to approach church, to approach God's people, we first have to focus on cleaning up the outside. And it's, it's a shame that for 2,000 years, this really is the sin of God's people. Is that we are so concerned, not just at, at our outside appearance, outward appearance, but also each other's outward appearance. Even to the point where we come into this place sometimes and we don't have the, the freedom to be real and to be vulnerable with each other because we're so concerned about what other people see. Jesus' focus was on the inside. It's helpful to note that Jesus does not commend those who are intellectuals and can fully understand and articulate the beautiful doctrines of the faith. There is a great danger in approaching the scriptures with only an intellectual appreciation. His focus maintains throughout scripture to be the heart. Now in looking at the human heart, more specifically your heart, my heart, we should be face to face with a problem. You know, a couple years ago, we did a lock-in at the church over at uh, Parkview Central Campus, and it was, it was, I think, it was post-flood, and so you know, Parkview used to have that kind of uh, a rubbery surface in the gym. Um, I don't know exactly what it was made out of, but it was a little softer. Now it's just really cheap carpet on concrete. Okay, no impact, you know, absorption whatsoever. Like you hit it and you feel it the way it works okay you feel the concrete we had a lock-in we had some kids from the spot over there and at this time we had some volunteers that were um, volunteering with our program from the the football team University of Iowa football team and so there's a bunch of those guys that were there and it was fun and we thought we would play a game of football and it was kind of like we took some of these guys and some of the kids and we made two teams and we spread out and um, it was it was really terrible what happened was you know about five or ten minutes into the game um, you know, the other team kicks off, and they throw it down, and I catch it, and I start running to the end of the gym. Now, some of the guys that we were playing with understood, hey, this is a kid's game in a church of football. Ain't that big of a deal. Um, some needed a little more convincing, and historically needed a little more convincing in any game we played ever. And there was, I caught the ball, and I was running down. I got maybe about... Uh, you know, halfway down, and there was a, a kid that came, and he was going to just touch football, you know, he was going to touch me, and he was small, and I thought, I'll just jump over him. Well, as I jumped, and I did, I jumped over him, as I did, I looked, and I saw Vernon Jackson, who was a defensive lineman, a very big man, coming at me, and if you know Vernon, or ever been around him, he does not relent, he's just unstoppable, and so I was in mid-air, with, a, with no control and a massive problem coming my way, all right? He hit me immediately. My head bounced off the concrete floor. And literally, I'm pretty sure I had a concussion. I mean, it hurt, and I was dazed for a couple hours, okay? Like, it was painful. But while I was in mid-air, I mean, the, mid the thing was, I was completely out of control. I had a massive problem coming my way very fast, and there was nothing I could do to stop it. As we look at our heart, as we examine what our heart is, we should see the same reality. A massive problem in front of us that we can do nothing to stop. It's completely out of our control. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the beautiful news of the gospel. Only when we have come to the end of ourselves and recognize our need, our helplessness. Only out of that state of complete desperation, 
Only then can we supernaturally cross over from death to life. Not because of anything we can do, only by his grace. Only by his grace. As we think about our hearts, only you and God know what's in your heart. That's the truth. Only you and God know what's in your heart. And as you stare into the depths of your heart and come face to face with what I would say is a big problem, same thing for me, we are in desperate need of supernatural intervention. What does it mean to have a pure heart? As we think about purity of heart, two things I think are helpful. Two really meanings, different meanings, but get to the same thing. The first, I'd say, is the most obvious. What does it mean to have a pure heart? most obvious meaning and definition of that purity is cleanliness. This is the obvious meaning. The Greek word here could be translated clean, guiltless, ritually pure. We are told in Revelation that no one can enter into God's presence without this cleanliness. Revelation 21, 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter in, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Again in 22.14, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to be to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. That's exactly, this idea of cleanliness is exactly what we see as Isaiah encounters the Almighty. In Isaiah 6, uh, 1 through 7, we learn about his encounter, the vision he has with the Lord seated on the throne and the train of his robe fills the temple and there's seraphim there. And it says in, in chapter 6, uh, verse 6 and 7, Then one of those seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. As he touches him on the lips with that coal, he cleanses Isaiah. He cleanses him. So this is one meaning of purity of heart is to have a clean heart. But there's another meaning that's not so obvious. And, and the way a uh, famous Danish philosopher puts it, he writes a book, Soren Kierkegaard writes a book, and it's called Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. To have a pure heart is to will one thing. So and one definition would be cleanliness. Another definition, I think Kierkegaard is right when he says this, is that another definition would be cleanliness but singleness as well. To have a pure heart is to will, is to want, is to desire one thing and one thing only. This is exactly, I believe, what Jesus is getting at in, in Matthew 22, 36 through 38 when he's approached uh, by a Pharisee. He says, he's asked the question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And, and Jesus says to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. This is the idea, the idea of purity that we learn from James as we consider his words in chapter 4, verse 8, when he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts. And those who are not pure, he describes them as a double-minded man. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. The impure heart in James is described as a double-minded, or another way of saying that is a divided heart. 
a heart which does not will one thing. It is ultimately a heart that says, God isn't enough. In order for me to, to be satisfied as a person, I need God plus fill in the blank. God plus a career. God plus education. God plus a husband. God plus family. God plus anything. Ultimately, is a massive, massive danger. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. We are to have a heart that wills one thing. And as we consider what it means to have a pure heart, it looks a lot like a heart that can say, Jesus is enough. Whatever comes at me in life, Jesus is enough to find our satisfaction, our soul's contentment in him and him alone. That's ultimately what it means to have a pure heart, to be clean and to have a heart that wills one thing. So getting back to this blessing, what is the nature? So the heart that is pure before God, how is it blessed? What is the blessing? Well, the blessing is that they shall see God. They shall see God. As we've seen is true with the previous Beatitudes, this blessing is twofold. There is a blessing to be had here and now. The pure in heart are blessed right now. But they are also blessed not yet fully. This is the nature of the Beatitudes because this is the nature of God's kingdom. We can see glimpses and, and we can get an idea of what his kingdom is like here and now. But ultimately we don't know it fully. That's the nature of his kingdom, the here but the not yet. 1 Corinthians 13 and 12 is really helpful as we consider what this blessing looks like here and now. It says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So right now there is something about seeing God that I can know and I can experience. So what is the blessing? How do we see God here and now? I think there's two things. I mean, you can think of several, but these two are ones I think will, might be helpful. I hope will be helpful. And, and the first is we find in Romans chapter 1, verse 19 and 20. How are we blessed now by being able to see God? Verses 1, 19, chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 in Romans. For what can be known about God is plain to them. As Paul thinks about those who are rejecting truth that they should be able to discern just by looking at the natural word world, he says this, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. As people make excuses for not knowing if God exists, Paul says you can't do that because you should be able to know there's a God just by looking at his creation. You should know there was a creator. We can see God through his creation, the beauty of the sunrise, the vastness of the ocean. God is partially visible to us now as we look at the world that he has made. I think even of, you know, probably the, the place that you could see this the most present is, is the truth of the doctrine of the Imago Dei. That God, when he made you, when he made me, he took his image and put it in us. So that as we interact with each other, we have a, a, a partial understanding of what he is like. Because he has put part of himself into us. 
and it's a blessing. Even in Matthew um, chapter 25, when Jesus is talking about the, the final day of judgment and he talks about the separation that will happen as, as he separates the righteous from the unrighteous, the sheep from the goats, as he talks about this, his focus is on how, how do I know the difference between the righteous and the unrighteous? Well, how did you treat the poor? How did you treat the naked? In this moment, Jesus identifies these people with God himself. As you did to them, so you did to me. He, it's a blessing to be able to see God. We can do it here and now, even in our own faces. Even in our own faces. And there's another way that we can see God here and now. And I think this one, to me, this is the one when I think about practically, what do I do? This one is helpful for me. It's in 1 Samuel 3, 21. And the Lord, this is an amazing verse. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So here's Samuel, and he has a vision. The Lord appears to Samuel. And I, when I think about what the church wants and needs today, it's a big vision of an amazing God. Think about what my soul longs for is this. And I think sometimes the church slips or saints can be tempted to slip outside of the Bible and try to find visions and, and things that, that maybe are not consistent with how God has operated throughout history. As the Lord appears to Samuel at Shiloh, how does he do it? He revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Through his word, God appeared to Samuel. If we want a vision, if we want to see God now, here and now, we put our nose in his word. This is where we live. This is where we live. And as a result, he says, we are blessed. We are blessed because we can see God. We can see him. We also know that the blessing is yet to come. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. One day we will be ushered into his presence and it will no longer be a partial presence, a glimpse. Our hearts will long no more. We will know him fully and we will be fully known by him. One day this will be totally fulfilled. We will stand in his presence. So here's the deal. The reality is that pure heart that we long for, the, the vision of God that we desire to have, ultimately is impossible. It's impossible for us to obtain apart from supernatural intervention. So as we close this morning, there's there's two things I think that we can consider in terms of application. The last question, which I think we should ask is, how should I respond? As we discern truth, the last question we should always ask is, what next? What does it mean for me? How do I obey this? How should I respond? And there's two things. I think the first is, there might be some among us today who do not have this new heart. And, and the truth is, what Jesus is in the business of doing is changing out one heart for the next. In Ezekiel 36, 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone 
from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Apart from him and his grace, this is completely unattainable for the natural man. Our own strength, we do not stand a chance. We are totally and eternally dependent on God to make a way, and he has. There is a man who lived a life that we cannot live and died a death that we deserve. And he offers us his heart. He offers us his heart. And so this morning, if you have not had that transformation, I think that is the practical step you can take, is to ask God for a new heart, and he will give it to you. For those of us here who know Jesus as our Savior, who have received that transplant, there's another thing I think that we can do. Psalm 86, 11 is a, is a great verse. And honestly, I mean, anytime you can even just pray this verse before you open God's scripture, I think it will really, I find it really helpful. It says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. As David cries out to God, his prayer, his desire is that God would unite his heart. That he would take David's heart and unite it with his. So that God's passions, God's desires become David's passions. David's desires. That as God looks at a sinful, fallen world and it's broken, his heart breaks. That as David now looks at that same world, his heart breaks as God's heart breaks. His heart has joy as God's heart knows joy. David wants a united heart with the Almighty. That's what he cries out for and asks for. That's what we should cry and ask for as well. That God would unite us, unite our heart with him. A simple Simple prayer, but a loud, loud cry. What are the cares of this world? What are the cares of this world? And it just as you leave here even this morning, I think this would be a good question to maybe talk about. What are the things in your life, in your world now, that are tempting you to have a divided heart? That may be keeping you from having a united heart with the Lord. What are those things? What are the things that this world has to offer that your heart cannot resist. It's not worth it. What this world has to offer, what we see week after week as we look at the Beatitudes, it's absolutely not worth it. Pray for a united heart with the Lord. Let me pray. Father God, thank you um, just for your truth, Lord, and uh, thank you just the, the reality of your gospel. The truth of your gospel is that this um, goal, this pure heart, which ultimately is unattainable, Lord, um, you do not expect us to earn it, Lord, but you offer, you give it freely to those who ask. And so I just pray right now, if there's anybody here that's here this morning who may know all too well the reality of a dirty heart or a divided heart, Lord, and I pray that you would help them come face to face with that problem. Lord, that they would reach out to you. And as they draw near to you, your word promises that you will draw near to them, Lord. I pray that you would do that even this morning. Lord, I pray for those here who have known you um, for years, days, whatever, Lord. I pray that you would um, unite our heart to yours, Lord. And that as we consider our world, as your heart breaks, that our heart would break. As we see sin enter the lives of those we care for and love, even those we don't know, Lord, that as your heart breaks over that sin, that our heart would break as well. Lord, I pray that you would unite our hearts to yours. Help us to live a life that, that makes you known, even in this community, Lord. We love you and we ask these things in your holy and precious name.
Amen.